This afternoon we will open our, script, our Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 2. The pastor will continue on with the catechism series, possibly already next week. This will be a text-based sermon and our text for this afternoon is from Luke 2. We'll read the verses 2 through 35 and the text will be from the verses 34 and 35 of this chapter. This is of course when Mary and Joseph um, are bringing Jesus or brought Jesus to the temple. Luke 2 verse 25, there we find the words of the Lord, and behold there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at these, those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this is our text, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. After the sermon, we will sing from hymn 53, the stanzas 2 and 4. <clears throat> Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, maybe you have seen these signs on people's lawns. We see them in Hamilton, at least. They read, Keep Christ in Christmas. This is a, a countercultural message. And it's good, a good reminder. Christ must remain at the heart of Christmas because it's his birth we are celebrating, not some kind of airy, ethereal, good cheer or something like that. It's the birth of Christ. And of course, without Christ, there would be no Christmas. So let's keep Christ in Christmas. And yet we have to admit Beloved, that we can't keep Christ in Christmas because he was never meant to stay there. He came to save a lost world and the world he came to save hated him. It may have been only been a few weeks or a few months after Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to the temple that King Herod issued a warrant for his death. He wanted him dead. So Joseph and Mary and the baby fled to Egypt, as you know. You see, even at Christmas, Jesus is marked for suffering. And death pursued him. 
In a word, Christmas forces us to the cross and from the cross and only from the cross do we have a proper lens to gaze upon the wonder of our Savior's birth. Not only must we keep Christ in Christmas, we must keep Christ and the cross in Christmas. But the clouds of Calvary are casting their dark shadows over this precious child in the arms of this devout follower of God, Simeon. That's where we find ourselves this afternoon. And the shadows of the cross are descending, and we see and we meet Simeon. He's an elderly man, very elderly, close to death, who is waiting for the consolation, for the comfort of Israel, as spoken about in Isaiah, he was a devout worshiper of God, a prophet, you could say, in his own right, who was ready to die because his eyes had gazed upon Jesus, the Savior of this world. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful story. But then we welcome Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus to the scene. And in particular, our text, we focus on Mary. Because after Simeon prophesied those beautiful words, he says in verse 34, Then Simeon blessed them and then said to Mary, his mother. He said to Mary, while Joseph is staying, standing right beside them. He said to Mary. He commissioned, he has commissioned, you could say, uh, to give a word, a particular word to Mary, to prepare Mary for what? is to come. Maybe because Joseph would die before Jesus' ministry commenced. That's the most likely. But maybe because Mary bore Jesus and her heart would feel the pain of what would happen to the Christ even more than Joseph's would. We're not told exactly why he said this only to Mary. But we are told this. Behold, this child right here, this one, is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also the thoughts of many hearts may, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Mary, you got to listen up here. And what makes this difficult, especially difficult for Mary, is the contrast or the juxtaposition with the prophecies that she has heard over the last nine months to the time of his birth and the words just spoken now by Simeon. The two seem to be in contradiction. Let us recount just briefly some of those prophecies that would have been ringing in the ears of Mary Prophecies that brought her hope and joy. You remember the angel when he appeared to Mary to tell her that she was going to conceive and bear a son said this about Jesus, he will be great. That's how he started, he'll be great. And all God's people say amen. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and, his, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke 1, verse 31 and following. 
Mary gets excited about this and she runs and tells her cousin Elizabeth. And when she enters the door, the baby in Elizabeth's womb jumps, as you know. It's not very common. And then Elizabeth proclaims these words. She said, blessed are you among women, Mary. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She's overjoyed by this meeting. There are other texts. And now Mary had baby Jesus. And the angel comes again, and the angels come again. And one angel in particular has come in advance, and, the, and, and this angel announces this in Luke 2 to the, to the shepherds. They, he says to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And in response to that prophetic word, or that, word, that announcement, that birth announcement, we have this this multitude of angels singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And we know that when they told Mary this, she treasured this all up in her heart like any good mother would. And then she meets Simeon in the temple and it just keeps going. Simeon says, my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel can you picture Mary now receiving all this news about the son of God the child she bore so many promises so much hope so much was resting on this child in Simeon's arms so much anticipation Israel finally had their king who would sit on David's throne. And like any good mother would want this, she would believe that the child she was able to bear would be loved and received and even worshipped by the people he came to love and serve. He was the promised Messiah, wasn't he? And then these words. And Mary had to be prepared for the reality of Christ's mission. Not her mission for Christ, but God's mission through Christ. He would be opposed. He would be rejected. And the hearts of men are evil. He came into an evil world. And she would need to remember the words of Isaiah. He would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He would be despised and they would esteem him not. That's your son. The son you bore anyway. She also had to realize, like we do today, that there's nothing neutral about the incarnate son of God. His birth, beloved, does not allow for indifference. A kind of postmodern whatever. He is the great divider of men and women. And his ministry and life will be characterized by this question. Are you for me? Are you with me? Or are you against me? Are you going to stay? Or are you going to leave me? There's only... It's the only question. There is no neutral ground 
Even though there's level ground in front of the cross as we read in the bulletin today, there was no neutral ground about Jesus. Either you accepted him and worshipped him or you rejected him. And this afternoon as believers and saints of Christ, we realize that we can't tarry long at the celebration of his birth. We too are called to pick up our own crosses. And remember, it's not safe to follow this Christ. If you chiefly are concerned about your physical safety, it's not safe to follow this one who's going to be opposed. There are risks that need to be taken when you know and love the king who was born in Bethlehem stable. We need to allow our hearts also to become vulnerable as Mary's heart would become extremely vulnerable. We need, to love, we need to have our hearts become vulnerable as we pour out our love for our king and then through our king we love other people. There's so much vulnerability in the service of this great king. We may get hurt in the process. You might need to risk your personal well-being for the sake of knowing and loving Christ in a world that hates him. Just ask many of our brothers and sisters in some 50 countries around this world that are being persecuted on account of his name. It's not safe to follow Christ physically, but it is good. It's altogether good. It's eternally good. There is no better good. But this morning, this afternoon, I want to kind of unpack that reality as we understand Mary's context and we understand our own context as followers of Christ, that there is some level of risk, there is some level of pain, that there will be some level of suffering as we walk behind the Savior who suffers in our place. And that's because of three different things. One, because Jesus is the divider of men and women. We'll look at that. Two, because he is a sign that is opposed, as we read. And because three, our hearts are vulnerable in our pursuit of him. They're made vulnerable. And the vulnerability of our heart is a good thing for Christians. We'll discuss that too. Simeon waited a long time to enter the temple. A long time. And I don't imagine for a moment Simeon wanting to have to share these other words to Mary. Words that show that Christ would not be accepted as she might have thought. Words of contempt, of opposition. But it's important to know that the Holy Spirit put these words in Simeon's mouth because the Holy Spirit, from the Spirit of God, wanted to prepare her so she knew when it happened that this would happen. He will cause, the Holy Spirit put in the mouth of Simeon, he will cause the rising and the falling in many in Israel. The rising and the falling. Now those aren't words that we often use. The cause of rising and falling. But scholars rightly point out that this is probably pointing to Psalm 118. The stone that would make men stumble. This is the words from Psalm 118. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Actually, that's from Isaiah 8 as well. 
As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, speaking of Jesus, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So the falling are those who fall over the stone and the rising are those who trust in Christ. There's only two options. Now we know if we fall over something, it's generally because that something is in our way. We get a little frustrated by that. So why was Jesus in the way? Was he? Ironically, one of the reasons people stumbled over Jesus was because Mary and Joseph were her, his parents, so the leadership thought. And he claimed to be the son of God, and they saw him as the son of Mary and Joseph. And, and we have a conflict here. Matthew 13, verse 55 says, the, the, the leaders of, of Israel, the Pharisees were saying this, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers James or Joseph, Joseph in Greek, Simon or Judas, and his sisters, are, are they not also with us? Where then did this man get all these things? <laughs> and so they were offended at him. They stumbled over him. The word offended is where we get the word scandalous. They were scandalized by him. But the, the offense did not lighten up. They didn't become less offended as Jesus' ministry continued. In fact, the opposite was the case. They became more offended by him, more jealous, more contemptible. Jesus knew very well that he would be, cause, be the cause of the rising and falling of many in Israel. And even his own disciples would suffer on account of this reality. Paul would realize that in his ministry as well. As he was flogged and beaten, imprisoned and put even to death on account of the testimony of Jesus, often by his own people. And in 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, I'm a, the, 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 Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, but he's still that stumbling block. And then 2 Corinthians 2 verse 16, he says, to the one we are the aroma of death, leading to death. And to the other, we are the Roman of, aroma of life leading to life. There is only two options. Some see death and, and, and want to destroy us on account of Christ, and others are, are just breathing in this aroma of life as we preach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's still happening, beloved. It's still happening all over this world. Well, there are there those, of course, who didn't stumble over him. There were those who trusted Christ. And the text reads that they were caused the falling and the rising over Israel. Well, who doesn't stumble over Christ? Who in Israel didn't stumble over Christ? And who in this auditorium or the sanctuary does not stumble over Christ? Because there's still lots of people stumbling over him. Scandalized by him. All those who by faith accept Christ for exactly who he says he is, they don't stumble. 
Do you trust Christ for exactly who he says he is? Nothing more and nothing less. Just the Christ of Scripture prophesied in the Old Testament. Come to life in the New. Do you believe in him and for who he says he is? Because if you do and you accept him for exactly who he is, by faith, you won't stumble over him. He is the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God, our Savior. He's our Lord. And Peter's confession is a summary of all of what Israel should have said. When Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And all of Israel should have responded with Peter, but they didn't. They had another response, kill him. But they should have responded with Peter, you are the Christ the promised Messiah, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The disciples also did struggle to understand Christ and believe in him. But this statement, this confession, is a proof by God's grace that they were not stumbling ultimately over him. I want to just address the youth here, particularly, maybe because it's a youth focus today. Young people, do you realize that those who stumble over Christ often want to take others down with them when they fall? It often happens that when you are, are traveling with somebody and, and you begin to stumble, if you're holding on to that person, you try to bring that person, you don't realize it, but you actually bring that person down with you when you trip and you fall. And you end up making a bigger problem. But when people are not believing in Christ and do not accept Christ for his word and are trying to live their life away from Christ and only see Christ as an impediment to their otherwise fun life, they will want other people to join them in their stumbling. Initially, I had the point here that about... Uh, as my first point, you know, this social equilibrium that Jesus disrupts our social equilibrium. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird to put that as a point. But I'll unpack it a little bit for you this afternoon. In our social equilibrium, we try to create our friendships and those we commune with or have fellowship with, and, and we don't want anything to disturb that social equilibrium, especially amongst our peers. And this is often as young people. We just want everything to be fun. We want everything to be cool or sick or whatever you used. And, and as soon as someone brings the denominator down and, and starts to live a life outside of what Christ would expect, we just kind of go with them. Why? Because we don't want the social equilibrium to change. Everything's just working now. And as our friends are easily able to influence us, we just kind of go with them and, and we start to descend and actually we're beginning to stumble. And we don't even realize it. I tell you now that Jesus Christ disturbs our social equilibrium. He says you need to be willing to deny your friends for me. You need to be able to deny your family for me. You need to deny everything for me. It's not about your social equilibrium. 
Even if you've lost all your friends for me, you've gained eternal life. Oh, there's a risk. But count those costs. What you gain in Christ is far more than your friends can give you if they are bringing you away from Christ, if they're causing you to stumble over him because you're not accepting him for his word and not following in his steps. You need to measure that carefully. And this belongs to all of us in our businesses, in our social interactions, in our sports. He's a stumbling block. He causes the rising and the falling. He still does that today. But he's also a sign that is opposed. He's a sign that is opposed. Simeon uses very covenantal language here. Language that God always used as, as when he condescended, when he come, came down to interact with his people. He would often give them a sign. Right? You remember that? So God came down after Noah... After the flood, and he gave the sign to Noah, and the sign was what? A rainbow. I will not do this again. I will not send this huge deluge over the earth. There will be no more fossils rising on Mount Everest anymore from the flood. Now God gave the sign of the rainbow. God gave the sign of circumcision to show who belonged to him and who was meant to be part of his covenant people. That was the sign of circumcision. God gave the sign of the Passover lamb, and there were repeated signs throughout the Old Testament. And it's worthy to note, beloved, that these signs were not opposed by the religious class in Jesus' time. They were ignored, maybe, but they were not opposed. It was part of their historical covenantal heritage, but at the time of Christ, these signs of the Old Dispensation, the Old Testament, were received and held on to. But the sign that they pointed to, the sign of all signs, the sign, the par excellence sign, the sign of Jesus, that was opposed. It says Jesus is a sign that is opposed. That's what it, what it says. And for a sign which will be spoken against. Jesus was opposed by the vocal majority that wanted him crucified. That's how it all ended. See, the, the Pharisees constantly gained momentum. And what, how did they gain momentum amongst the people? They constantly spoke out against Jesus. They were like a festering cancer that continued to grow and continued to gain more followers, more adherence to their, to their diabolic lies. But they gained momentum by speaking out against Jesus constantly. And we learn at the time of his death, his death, his death approached anyways, he, he, this mass of people of Israel scorned him. He was mocked by them. He was ridiculed by them. And on the cross, when his body was weakened by pain and blood loss and hunger, and as he died from asphyxiation, still he was opposed. I should be careful, someone corrected me. He didn't actually die from asphyxiation. He died when he gave up his spirit. But it brought him unto death. There was so little sympathy for Jesus, even on the cross in his last breath, that he was spoken against there. He saved others, but he can't save himself. 
That's the taunting. That's what Mary heard. Oh, she heard the words of people speaking against the son she bore. He was a sign that was spoken against while he tarried with us on this earth, and he's still a sign that is still spoken against, though he tarries in heaven. I'll just give you a few examples of that, and you could list probably 30 more. We all know that when Christ's name is bandied about by unbelievers, it's blasphemy. Untold millions use his name as a swear word. No one puts Buddha on their lips when, when they stub their toe, but they will sure use Christ or Jesus. It's open season for the blasphemy of his name he's still spoken against. Why? Because he's a sign. He's a sign. He's a sign. Or take the radical Darwinist, or any Darwinist. They don't need to be that radical. I'll just give you one example. They see the, the fish symbol. Maybe some of you have this on your van or your car. And what they do, they invert it and create a fish with legs and inscribe the name Darwin inside. Why? Because it's a sign that's spoken against. Or you take the old cult who chooses to invert the cross and then wear that cross upside down boldly on their chest or get it tattooed on their arms. But they do not dare touch the star and the crescent of the Islamic faith. Why? Because Christ is the sign that is spoken against in our age. Or if you say you affirm Christian marriage as defined by Scripture... You are called a bigot and a homophobe. Why? Because Christ is a sign that is opposed, beloved. And the opposition camp seems to be growing. And at the cross, we see God's judgment against sin and God's willingness to accept the sinners through Christ's blood. But not surprising then that the cross is the most decisive of all symbols of the, on this earth. It's actually at the cross that ultimately decides whether a faith is truly in Christ or not. And every sect and every pseudo-Christian and every atheist, agnostic, pantheist, Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, Mormon, JW, all are dealing with the reality of either accepting or opposing that symbol and what it represents. And the Holy Spirit again is teaching Mary and teaching us, his church, that when it comes to our Lord Jesus, there is no neutral ground. You can't claim the name of Christ and love him with all your heart and follow him and pick up your cross and expect the world around you to just rally around you and applaud you as you journey to glory. You're not going to get the applause of men as you boldly raise that cross and say, I stand for Christ in him alone. They're not going to rally around the wagon for you. No, you will be hated on account of me, Jesus says. John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me first. I was the sign that was spoken against. If you were of the world, Jesus continues, the world would love, it, you, love you as its own. If you were part of them, they would love you. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. 
Mary had to realize this risk, this reality, and she had to embrace it by faith. There was no other option, though she did not always understand. If it was her will, she would try to get Jesus out of the line of fire. It wasn't her will. Even if she wasn't opposed directly as Peter and Paul and John were, she understood something of that risk of following Christ and loving him. And you see, all over the world, beloved, the followers of Christ, the followers of this baby born in, in Bethlehem and who has become our Savior, have to count the costs. They're counting the costs in China today. They're counting the costs in Iran, in, in, in Azerbaijan, in Pakistan, in Sudan, in Nigeria, in Somalia. They're just counting the costs. We're praying for a few people in, in Blessings Christian Church where I attend sometimes who are Muslims coming to the Christian faith or they are, they've just become Christians or they're about to become Christians and they, they're counting the costs. They say it's, it's impossible. It's so hard because I know what's going to happen when I say I'm a Christian. Even in Canada, there's intense persecution for those who move from the Islamic faith to the Christian faith because he's a sign that is opposed. Thankfully, in Christ, we have all that we need to stand in this battle, but it is a battle. And the last thing I just want to point out, as we understand something of this risk of following Christ, who is a perfect, blessed Redeemer, is that it's something of the heart as well, that Christ wants our hearts. In fact, I would argue that Christ wants our hearts to become vulnerable, to become open. Literally it says, and this is a bit confusing, so I'm just going to unpack this a little bit. And a sword will pierce your heart too, talking to Mary, so that the hearts of many will be revealed. Now, theologians have chosen, I think rightly, to put um, parentheses, brackets, around the words, and a, source, and a sword will pierce your heart too. It's kind of um, an addendum, it's kind of an appendix to what else is said here. And the result of this decision is this, that the hearts of many will be revealed is, is related to the signs. Um, you're a sign that is opposed, and because you are a sign that is opposed, the hearts of many will be revealed. So the hearts of many being revealed is connected to the sign, not to Mary's heart. And the connection between a sign that is opposed and what lives in our hearts is pretty easily connected. You can easily draw a line between a sign that is opposed and the hearts that are revealed. Why? Because if you oppose the sign, if you oppose Christ, your heart will be revealed. If people hate Jesus, it can only last in there so long before. Before it comes out. If people hate you on account of Jesus, they can only hold back their anger, their vitriolic response for so long. And as they throw out this, these, this tyrant of this, 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 this rage, this anger, as they throw it all out, you, you, you get a picture of their heart. Their heart is so angry, so 
full of sin, so need of grace. God revealed many hearts when they all sang out those words, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Because from the outflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I think that's the connection. But yet he puts in the brackets here, or whatever he does, the Greek doesn't have brackets. But he puts in here that a sword will pierce through your own soul also. You see that in verse 35, the brackets around those words? Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Why mention this, her heart or her soul? I think there's two reasons, one for her and one for all of us. And that's where we'll close off this afternoon. First for her. She bore this precious Savior. She has the stretch marks to prove it. Her heart was inseparably then connected to the baby that she bore, like a mother's heart for her child. And all your mothers know exactly what I'm talking about. When you finally get to hold the baby in your arms after a hard labor, And she would watch her baby boy grow up, though he was not really hers, as you know. There may have been even a time when she had to sit down with Jesus and say, Jesus, Joseph actually isn't your real dad. Um, your father is in heaven. You're, you've come as a savior to this world from above. And maybe at that, one, that moment, I don't know when it happened, when he was four, maybe when he was five, maybe when he was six, when, he, when, that, when that story had to happen, <laughs> that, that Christ's eyes would have been open and he would have realized, yes, something was a bit different than I expected. And yeah. So often we just assume that Christ's divinity just assumes everything, but he was a boy. He was a man that had to come to a knowledge of his place in this world and why he came here. And Mary traveled with him down that road. We know that. And Mary would have saw him start his ministry, and Mary would have seen how he was opposed and how he was mocked and scorned and that he had no place to lie, lay his head. And She would have seen the, the attempts of murder on his life. She would have seen everything or heard about it. And she was certainly there when they nailed him to the cursed tree and the cries of pain ascended. They would have been ringing in her ears. And even at that moment, Jesus, in his asphyxiated, breathless speech, says to her, woman, he didn't call her mom, he said, woman, behold your son. And he says to the son, John, behold your mother. What a gentle, gentle shepherd Jesus was even to his mother in his last breath. What kindness, but how that must have pierced her heart. It says a sword, that's not a little knife. A sword will pierce your heart, Mary. And near Mary would have said, it did, it did. 
she had to be forewarned that this would happen. I hope she was prepared. But there's another reality here, and that's bigger than Mary's heart. It involves our hearts, too, that are regenerated by the Holy Spirit that regenerated Mary's heart, that yearns deeply for our Savior. And it seems the closest, the closer you come to Christ, the more vulnerable your heart becomes, more pliable, more usable, more at risk, really, of being hurt. C.S. Lewis, in this book, The Four Loves, puts it this way, and I agree with C.S. Lewis on this. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love, this is the whole quote, so it's a bit longer. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it, your heart, intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal, Lewis says. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. Just lock it up. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable impenetrable, irredeemable, hard. To love is to be vulnerable. When we love Christ, beloved, the Holy Spirit opens our heart to become vulnerable. It no longer lies in the coffin of our selfishness. It lies in the hand of a Savior who loves us and wants us to love others, even if it hurts. Because when we love Christ, beloved, this way, we grieve over the pain and the sorrow that we gave him, the pain and the suffering that he had to endure for our, 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 for our, on our behalf, and that does pierce our hearts. The Lord's Supper is a place where our hearts are often pierced. And when we realize what Christ did for us and our hearts are vulnerable, we want so, many, so much that other people understand what Christ did for them and then we open up our hearts to them and we begin to become vulnerable with them. We begin to share that love. But they can take our heart and twist it and hurt us. How many times as a missionary working in Papua New Guinea where you just share the love of Christ and you open your heart up for people and they deceive you or they, they, they speak against you or they just, they, they hurt you just because you've opened your heart up. You ever have that? It's not just for missionaries and pastors. It's for anyone who's sharing the love of Jesus. But Christmas, beloved, reminds us that not only did Christ come 
as a little baby. He came as a savior to, to fill our hearts with hope and with joy and with resolve to keep on loving even when it hurts. So in love, we follow Jesus then. And we know as we do, actually, there is ultimately no risk in that. Because in Christ, we are secure forever. What little risks we bear, what little safety goes here on earth is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us on the day of days. It's not much of a risk. No, beloved, the only risk is this is rejecting this Savior who's done so much for us. There is an immeasurable risk of losing your soul to eternal damnation. But in Christ, even as we're vulnerable in Christ, we have in him all that we need for this life and the life he purchased for us with him forever. Amen.